Welcome to Wilderness Podcast, a passion project about wilderness and wild places, with your host, Adam Bronstein. Hello, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Wilderness Podcast. If you're listening via web browser, I strongly encourage you to close out of that and to pick up your smartphone and head over to Apple iTunes, or if you're on a, an Android, Google Play. Uh, there's also many other apps out there like Stitcher or Spotify, and you can continue listening there to this episode. Um, if you subscribe through your app, you'll also be notified of new releases when they come out, and you'll also gain access to past episodes. I wanted to take a couple moments to reflect on some changes that have been happening with me and this program. It's probably fairly obvious, but I've become more of an activist. And this is especially apparent in the last couple episodes. But this process has been ongoing, I'd say, for the past six months or so. And the Gallatin Range in Montana and the conservation collaborative and compromise approach taken by the Big Greens and state and some regional conservation nonprofits has um, really been a catalyst and it's opening my eyes to what's going on across the country, but also the failure to speak up about grazing and the harmful effects on the landscape and in our wilderness areas, the impacts of industrial strength, recreation, and many other issues. And, you know, when I first set out to create this program, I was going into it thinking I would be a reporter and provide unbiased storytelling and have people on to discuss multiple sides of, of issues. And I don't necessarily feel like my transition into activism has been a personal choice. It's just kind of something that's happened. You know, it reminds me of that NBC jingle, The More You Know. So I just wanted to get that out there. It was already probably a apparent anyways, but I just don't want to be misrepresenting myself or having you feel like I'm pretending to be a reporter when I'm, um, you know, quite obviously interjecting my opinions. But I will continue to address issues from multiple angles and ask tough questions. Um, but I just think it's important to, to put all that out there. In this episode, I speak with Joe Scalia and George Worthner, board members with the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance based out of Bozeman, Montana. And if you're a frequent listener of this program, uh, I apologize to you. I know that you've heard about the Gallatin Range ad nauseum, but I can't stress enough just how important these lands are and how consequential the upcoming decision by the Forest Service uh, will be, and also the way that uh, Congress um, takes on this issue in the upcoming months or years ahead. So these lands are vital to the health and integrity of the wildlife of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And if this is your first time hearing about the Gallatin Range, I encourage you to do some Google searches. And you might just run across Joe and George's writing. Oh, Joe Scalia and George Worthner, thanks for joining me on the program today. I really appreciate your time. Good to be here. Yes, glad to be here. And uh, yeah, I've talked to both of you in separate episodes, and uh, the listeners out there are probably familiar with you guys already, and I'm really glad to have both of you on the line together. 
And uh, today we're going to talk about the Gallatin Range and the Gallatin-Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance, which is the organization that both of you are board members of, and Joe is the president of uh, GYWA. And uh, I just figured we'd um, we'd chat a little bit about what's happening out there and uh, raise awareness around uh, around the campaign that you guys are putting together. This is big news, and um, this is some of the biggest wilderness news in the country at this at this particular time. So I first heard about what's happening out there from an article that Joe you wrote in Mountain Journal. And then I uh, also saw um, some of the articles that George, you wrote in Counterpunch and uh, through some various Google searches. So uh, first off, thank you, you t- thank you both of you guys for your work in writing and raising, raising this awareness. I wouldn't even know what's going on and the public wouldn't know what's going on. And, I, and I'm hoping that through this conversation that we can reach even more people and let them know what's happening. So I was pretty blown away to learn that uh, some of the more traditional larger wilderness groups were not behind full wilderness designations in the Gallatin Range. And uh, it's it's a little disheartening and it's a little confusing. And uh, I think that people need to know what's happening and um, that the Gallatin-Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance was a for- was formed in response to this lack of, um, of, of action. So Joe, maybe you can, um, you can kick it off and just introduce yourself and tell us about what the Galton Yeltsin Wilderness Alliance is and what you're doing. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity you said earlier about writing, you know, and I thought the power of the pen and, and then the power of the voice. So here's our voices. Um, you know, I'm a former president of Montana Wilderness Association. And when I was the president of it, I, I was, I, I was moved to be in that position to, to, I mean, it's such a, a storied, um, accomplished organization. Um, and, and it very, um, appropriately, uh, at least at the time. And now I think somewhat questionably or only at times appropriately has, the motto, keep it wild. Um, and so, I mean, it used to be an organization that pushed hard for wilderness, like many organizations were doing at the time, but it has gone over like many have also done. These are the ones who have moved from a push hard for wilderness and be like, um, I like to cite Henry Giraud, the, the scholar and activist Henry Giraud, saying that political movements need to be loud, educative, disruptive, noisy, systemic, and ongoing. And, and, and wilderness groups used to be all of those things. And now they, the, the mainstream wilderness groups <clears throat> who have big budgets are not using those budgets to remain that way. And so I, I've become really um, uh, in some grief about where those groups have gone. And so I'm really um, hopeful and fortunate to be uh, in the position I'm in now with Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance to try to 
bring awareness to the public who still thinks groups like MWA and Greater Yellowstone Coalition and the Wilderness Society, who are all part of the Gallatin Forest Partnership, who want to give away the highlight and porcupine drainages um, from the wilderness study area and the Gallatins, that they they all have gone this direction of giving up those six points of, of Giraud. And we are not giving that up. I'll break there. Okay, thanks for that. And George, if you could introduce yourself and sure. um, tell us, okay. um, tell everybody about um, where the Gallatins are located and their significance to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Okay, well, I'll start with a little background on myself, too, because it's related. Um, I, um, I came to Montana uh, at this point 50 years ago to study wildlife biology at the University of Montana, and very quickly, my second day in Montana, I was in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness and learned what wilderness was about, which I had never heard anything about it before. And um, in my youth, uh, I was um, uh, very active in learning about wilderness and, and both visiting, but also advocating for more wilderness. Uh, I can remember uh, going to uh, MWA meetings, you know, like when I was 20 years old and sleeping on hotel floors and stuff because I didn't have much money. And um, I'm also a former MWA board member, and I also previously worked for the Greater Yellowstone uh, coalition. And, uh, and I used to write a lot of articles for the uh, Wilderness Society back when they had a publication called Living Wilderness. So I have connection to all these organizations as well. And um, I had uh, an early uh, entry into the Gallatin Range um, when I was still, you know, early 20s doing backpacking there. And uh, you know, visiting that part of the state. Uh, Yellowstone was my favorite um, national park in the country, and uh, and I would uh, be in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem frequently. And uh, a couple of things about the Gallatin Range uh, that's significant. It's the largest unprotected roadless area in the northern part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So it's a key corridor for wildlife mig migration, as well as some of the best wildlife habitat in the northern Yellowstone ecosystem. And that's, you know, that's saying a lot because there's a lot of, of uh, beautiful wild country, but uh, the Gallatin Range, for a variety of reasons, a lot has to do with its geology, its orientation, and, and other factors, is, uh, is some of the best wildlife habitat. And particularly the southern end of the Gallatin Range, which um, Jill alluded to, the buffalo horn porcupine drainages, are the best wildlife habitat in the Gallatin Range. And they're a uh, well-established uh, place for grizzly bears, uh, also an elk migration corridor, elk wintering range, and it's got bighorn sheep and moose and deer and wolverine and mountain lion and wolves. Uh, basically, all the wildlife in the northern Rockies, the large mammals, can be found there. And um, back in the 1970s, um, there was a, a, a legislation passed called Senate Bill 393, uh, passed by Lee Metcalf. He was the uh, person who drove it. Um, which protected 
10 roadless areas in Montana as wilderness study areas. And one of those wilderness study areas was the Gallatin Range. The official name of the wilderness study area was the Highlight Porcupine Buffalo Horn uh, Wilderness Study Areas. And as you see, included in that name were two of these drainages. And um, that bill directed the Forest Service to manage these lands as wilderness until such time as Congress determines otherwise. So officially, the Forest Service is supposed to have been managing them just like any wilderness area. Uh, the Forest Service hasn't done that uh, and has allowed motorized use as well as mountain bikes and other things that would be prohibited in wilderness to uh, be in use in the area. But it had a little wiggle room because it said that uses that existed in 1977 when the legislation passed could continue at that level. But there were no mountain bikes, for example, in that time. And, and of course, the snowmobile use and dirt bikes, etc., was pretty limited back then. In any event, uh, fast forward uh, where we are today, um, we now have this area that is the largest unprotected roadless area, and this Gallatin Forest Partnership um, came out proposing that um, approximately about 100,000 acres in the Gallatin Range be protected as wilderness, uh, and uh, a couple of other areas, including the Buffalo Horn porcupine drainages and then the West Pine Creek area on the other side of the range near Livingston be designated wildlife management areas, which would allow mountain biking, in some cases motorized access on portion of it, uh, and even um, logging, although they carefully say um, no commercial logging, but none of the logging that's occurring right now on the Gallatin Forest is for commercial reasons, but there's still plenty of logging happening for, quote, forest health. So uh, that's not reassuring. And the only other wildlife management area we have in Montana, the Elkhorn Wildlife Management Area near Helena, has been experiencing lots and lots of illegal mountain bike trails and use, much to the chagrin and disappointment of some of the people who originally supported that wildlife management area designation because they thought they were getting protection. Mm. And the truth is they're not. The other irony in this um, situation is that uh, there are uh, several wilderness study areas on the Bitterroot National Forest, the Blue Joint and the Sapphire Wilderness Study Areas that were also designated in 1977. And the Bitterroot National Forest has concluded that allowing mountain bikes and anything else like that in these wilderness areas is illegal and not in compliance with their direction from Congress. And, and ironically, uh, in that case, the MWA is supporting the Bitterroot National Forest interpretation, yet when it comes to the uh, Gallatin Range, they are agreeing with allowing mountain bike use on a portion of the Gallatin Range. And I mentioned they support about 100,000 acres but there's uh, for wilderness designation, but there's anywhere between 230 to 270,000 acres that could potentially be designated as wilderness because it meets the minimum qualifications of roadless character. So 100,000 out of any of that amount is, is substantially less than what could be protected as wilderness. And we all know that wilderness designation is the best designation. It's solid. We've had it for years. We know what we get. Uh, we know what it will do. And it just seems unfortunate that these groups have aligned themselves with other 
people who are generally, they're not supportive of wilderness in, in itself only if they can't use it in their own way. In other words, they can't mountain bike there, if they can't log there, suffer, they're willing to maybe support wilderness. But um, they're not willing to support wilderness in places that exclude them from uh, using them for those purposes. So that's the problem. Yeah. Let me underscore and elaborate something you've said, George. So, and, and, and maybe you can, I don't know, correct or elaborate some of what I might say here too. Uh, so I, as the highlight or, or the, the part, the porcupine and Buffalo horn drainages or lower elevation Alpine valleys that support, um, way more wildlife, including large mammals than, um, than say deep Creek or, um, Sue's Creek up the Absorcas. Um, they're very different quality lands. And, and that's where these major environmental groups want to, that's what these major environmental groups want to give up to mountain biking. And, a lot of people, and I think endorsers of of the Gallatin Forest Partnership and of these three major environmental groups, and so including lots of um, Democratic uh, senators and representatives, state senators and state representatives, um, I, are endorsing that. And I don't think they understand that we're not talking about a few little... Um, you know, relatively skinny tire, um, low tech, easy, you know, not damaging mountain bikes. We're talking about high tech mountain bikes. We're talking about the threat of e mountain bikes. And we're talking about big fat tires oftentimes. And we're talking about two other things. Um, well, three Ill illegal trail building already in, in those two drainages and over the top in between those drainages and um, with those big fat tires. And we're talking about lots and lots of mountain bikes. This will be part of, this would be um, part of what merchants um, in Big Sky would market. Come here to Big Sky and ride your mountain bikes at this destination destination mountain biking mecca and that the porcupine and buffalo horn drainages would be severely damaged that's that's what i think endorsers really don't get i i'd like to elaborate on another point that take off from what joe just said which is um we don't have that many lower elevation valleys that are protected. In fact, most of them on, on the Custer Gallatin Forest, a lot of them have roads up them. They've been logged there. Uh, there's cabins up them, etc. And that's what makes this particular, uh, these valleys so unique is that actually we don't have that many places like that. And, uh, and, and because there are so many roads and other things in developed areas, you know, there's over, a, even if every single last acreage on the Custer Gallatin Forest was designated wilderness, which probably is never going to happen, but even if it did, there would be a, well over a million, I think it's about a 1.3 million acres that would still be available, mostly lower elevation terrain uh, that would still be open to mountain biking and ORVing and anything else. So there, there's a lot of places you can go and do that. It's not excluding mountain biking from every place on the Custer Gallatin Forest. but 
But we do know from a lot of new research that's come out that the impacts of mountain bikes are disproportionate. In other words, they're not the equal to a hiker or a horse packing uh, in terms of the way they disturb wildlife. And part of it is that they can go so far in a day. And Joe alluded to this, electric bikes even make the distances they can travel even greater. So the more trail miles that you can cover in a day, the more likely you are to have an encounter or disturb wildlife. Uh, some studies suggest that um, uh, elk will react up to um, a mile from uh, a mountain bike and um, on either side of a trail, and uh, and grizzly bears maybe even a couple of miles. And 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 that becomes if there's a lot of use, that becomes habitat that those animals don't use. And since they don't have that many low elevation places to utilize, uh, then that becomes a significant cost. And what we're trying to do is uh, argue that the ecological integrity of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem should come first, not recreation. And we're not against recreation, but we think there should be appropriate recreation and it should be done in a level that respects the existing wildlife that utilize these areas. I'm reminded, you know, Joe alluded to one person. I, I'm reminded of uh, Henry David Thoreau, who refused to pay uh, a tax to support a war. And, mm. and Ralph Waldo Emerson came to bail him out of jail. And, and Ralph Emerson said to Henry David Thoreau, Henry, what are you doing in there? And Henry said, Ralph, what are you doing out there? Mm. And I feel the same way. It's like, you know, we're we're talking about wilderness. Uh, you know, why are why am I having to argue with wilderness groups to, uh, you know, promote maximum wilderness? It just doesn't make sense to me, and it's a it's a big disappointment. And I think a lot of the people like myself who have been involved in wilderness in Montana wilderness act activism remember that a lot of places there were suggestions for compromises in the past that that weren't accepted. And we came out ahead because of that. A good example is one of the very first wilderness areas that was citizen activism got was the Lincoln scapegoat wilderness south of the Bob Marshall and a fellow named Cecil Garland, who was an MWA um, yeah. uh, president also, uh, yeah. worked yeah. to get 240,000 acres protected. And he was offered a compromise for 75,000 acres and um, and he said, no, uh, that's not good enough. I, I don't want to see the place logged or roaded up. And he kept at it and got his 240,000 acres by uh, perseverance and, and not giving up uh, at the first chance to just take something less. And uh, there are other stories I could give you about wilderness in Montana that follow that same pattern. The Great Bear was similar. The sort of Beartooth wilderness was similar. In all cases, uh, the Ravsnake wilderness, there were all proposals for less wilderness put on the table initially. And uh, wilderness activists back then said, no, we're, we're going to try to get as much as we can. They didn't necessarily get everything they wanted, but they got a lot more than they started out with being uh, on the table. And I think that's where we need to be. A couple of things um, associating from and springboarding from what what George has just been speaking of. So there are, uh, there, there is an abundance of scientific research that we are drawing on in some of what we're saying. Um, it's, it's not like it's just 
George's idea cooked up out of the blue or mine or anyone in our group or people who share our ideas about what should happen to the WSA and the Gallatins. But um, three scientists names who have researched and put together collections of, of other scientists work on in this area, David Matson, Chris Servine, Lance Craighead, they all have, and others have, right, have looked at, but these are some, some of the, these are the names I know best, and these are some of the bigger names, and, and influential names in, in resisting what's happening. These are all scientists who, who do not believe we should give up these two significant drainages to mountain biking. Um, they've shown how mountain bikes have a, 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 a far more displacing impact on, um, on large mammals. Well, on more than large mammals, but in particular, since that's our greatest concern and most iconic and most demonstrable concern um, to help people understand how, how they displace um, bears, grizzly bears, black bears, elk, et cetera. Um, way more dramatically with, with way more impact and, um, than hikers or horseback riders. It's, and, and then if you turn, and then if you turn those two drainages into a destination mountain bike area, which is what is easily predictable, um, with what's already happening economically at Big Sky and what's with what's happening with the population explosion in in this area of southwest Montana, um, there will be just devastating effects on wildlife there. This is this is not just our you know nightmare worry. This is scientifically amply amply demonstrated. So <clears throat> I I want I wanted to make that part of what we convey. And then there's another thing I want to, I think, just touch on because it's, um, it's really such an enormous subject, but I want to at least underscore the question that George raised, why are environmental groups like previously um, hard-spirited wilderness advocacy groups compromising like this, compromising their positions, compromising. I mean, is it, it, they are taking what one form of an ethical position um, and we are taking a different one. So they are not taking a position of an ethics of um, how do we humans live up against a wilderness area in such a manner that preserves the full integrity of that wilderness area. They are, that is not their position. They have a different ethics that is, so I will here, I am going to go a little further than I thought I might, you know, in terms of why do these groups do this? They are taking, they are from an ethics that is more like, um, how do you get along with everybody, all, all human groups? And so it's important to them and, but again, you can ask, why is this so important to them? Um, and I do think it's an important question, maybe for another time or for a book that I, in fact, am researching and beginning to write. But why is it so important to them to get along with 
motorized recreationists and mountain bikers and loggers? Um, why is it important to them to be able to say, hey, I, I rub elbows with these guys. I can sit down at the end of negotiating and have a beer with them. You know, I can too. I've had dinner with Carrie White, who is, um, I, I, I haven't asked Carrie, but so Carrie's a, a Montana representative and he's very active in, um, I, I think I'm fairly representing Carrie. He would do away with all the WSAs altogether if he could. Um, I, I can have a beer with Carrie and have, and very affably, but, but that doesn't mean we need to agree about what happens to wilderness. So yeah. Why do these folks feel that they need to agree? I, I, that's disturbing. Uh, I'm going to take two steps forward here after Joe's statement and work on two things there. One, um, I also did a study for two years on the greater Yellowstone ecosystem to study biological hotspots around the whole ecosystem. And I interviewed uh, botanists and professors and, and biologists with different agencies, uh, well over 100 people uh, for this report that actually, ironically, I did on contract for the Greater Yellowstone uh, Coalition. Um, and wow. uh, my colleagues and I, <laughs> yeah, my colleagues and I identified the Upper Gallatin as one of the biological hotspots in the ecosystem. And we're talking about an ecosystem that has a lot of, you know, superlative attributes. So, you know, to, to rate out a be high within the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is quite an achievement in its own right. And, and so, you know, that's part of where I'm coming from on this. This is not just an ordinary place. This is some of the best habitat for wildlife left in the entire ecosystem that has some of the best habitat in the entire United States. So, uh, you know, that's part of the problem. And then the, the other thing about getting along, I'm the same way as, as Joe says. I, you know, I, I don't dislike any of these people just because of the act. Uh, of who they are. I just don't think their activities are appropriate in certain places. And, um, and I remind everybody that uh, with wilderness, uh, you know, to a degree there, nobody's excluded. Um, you, you can walk, you can ski, you can snowshoe. There's a lot of ways you can access a wilderness area, but all this mechanical stuff, um, it, it winds up giving you a uh, an advantage over the natural landscape and, and it eliminates a lot of the um, natural, um, you know, limitations that would uh, slow us down a little bit and cause us to be a little more thoughtful and perhaps maybe even a little more respectful of what we're doing. Um, you know, I, I ride a bike, mountain bike, uh, quite a bit, actually. But um, I, I'm very careful about the kinds of places I do that in and, and where I do it. And uh, and, and I think about that kind of thing, what, you know, and I'm not doing it to, to commune with nature, frankly, because I'm going too fast and I'm having to watch the trail right in front of me. And I can't be looking around and noticing the tracks or noticing what, you know, uh, the leaves are doing on the aspen tree or anything like that. And, um, so I think that we, uh, we need to have these places where, uh, we put wild nature first. Uh, rather than as a secondary thought. And, and that's what wilderness designation forces us to do. And, uh, and it is uh, a designation that um, 
will, we hope, stand the test of time. As Joe alluded, there is a growing population in, in, in Montana as a whole in the United States, and, and these places are going to become more and more precious. And we need to give them the maximum protection we can, not something of less protection that's ambiguous in how much protection we have. The advocates of the Gallatin Forest Partnership say that their wildlife management areas, so what they're going to do is they're going to monitor them. And if they find that they're having impacts from any use on wildlife, well, then they'll put more restrictions. And of course, you say, well, who's going to do the monitoring? It's not the Forest Service. They don't have a budget to do that. They haven't done it themselves already. And then, and then you're going to expect the Forest Service to enforce something uh, that's not mandated by any legal mandate. Uh, we can't even get them to follow the uh, Senate 393 mandate to uh, limit uses in the Gallatin Range. So I don't have a lot of confidence that a wildlife management area is going to be as good uh, a designation as wilderness. And again, we should be advocating for what we think is the best thing for the wildlife there and for the landscape, not some uh, second-rate designation that has a lot of questionable assumptions behind it. David Matson's new publication on the impacts of uh, mountain biking, his new uh, his new article, um, I believe it was a mountain biker has a 14 times greater chance of, of startling a bear. And that's really the last thing you want to do for the human and for the bear. And, um, right. you know, we're, we're just going to have these situations where uh, people and animals are, are going to get hurt or going to get killed. And, you know, we yes, we need to give them space. Uh, for many reasons, but safety is is a big concern, and and I just I hope that the Forest Service, as they're considering which alternative to choose in their forest plan, that they're really considering, you know, some liability uh, concerns here. And you know, I was just talking to George Nickus uh, the other day, mm-hmm. and we were talking about the Gallatins and you know the increasing uh, recreation demands on our public lands and the commodification of nature, et cetera. And we were talking about the Bend area and how it's really just turned into a big recreational play- playground, and a lot of the wildlife is now gone here. And that's not the case in Greater Yellowstone. It's still intact in in very in many ways. And um, it would just be such a tragedy and a travesty to see it go. Joe, I'll pass it over to you. Yeah, thanks. I, I, um, I, I first heard from George, actually, um, that when, uh, when Yellowstone was being looked at um, as becoming Yellowstone National Park, there was resistance like that was seen as, you know, an economic uh, disadvantage to the area, which with our hindsight now, we know is completely laughable, risible. It's like it has been obviously quite the opposite. And I, I think it's pretty clear. I, I, I don't see how one can logically argue otherwise that the same would, will continue to happen if we can preserve the Gallatins as wilderness and, you know, everything on the other side of that Gallatin river on that Madison side, Madison range side, including big sky looking up at that Gallatin wilderness or looking across at it is 
going to be delighted to be there up against this incredibly wild place whose integrity has been sustained. It's not like that will cause people not to come to Big Sky. It's not going to hurt the economy of Big Sky. If anything, it would be quite the contrary, and it would be more lasting anyway than mountain biking. And so Big Sky is just one other destination mountain biking place out of any other once, you know, it's done its damage to the wildlife. But what we have here is not something as simple and, and um, well, um, what do I want to call it? Uh, relatively superficial and unsustaining to the human soul as a recreation resort. This is something far greater than that. Um, and that's, I, why people, I wanna... that's why people come here. Right, right, Sorry. right. And, and, and no, that, that's fine. Uh, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction that, um, uh, the kind of follow up partly on the big sky thing, a little history, uh, you know, the Gallatin range back in 1910, Gifford Pinchot, who was the first chief of the forest service recognized the Southern part of the Gallatin range as so significant for wildlife. He recommended that it should be made into a national wildlife refuge. And so, you know, there's an early appreciation for the wildlife areas there. And, um, and then um, in part after 1977, when the wilderness study area was made, um, one of the problems for wilderness designation was there was a checkerboard ownership of a lot of actually the whole Gallatin National Forest at one time uh, due to railroad giveaways back in the 1800s where uh, on either side of a railroad right away, uh, the railroads were given um, square sections, a mile square of, of public lands uh, that they could choose for quite a few miles on either side of the right of way. So a lot of the Gallatin range was checkerboard. And then in the 1980s and 90s, there was an effort to uh, either buy or trade out the private holdings in the Gallatin range to and the express purpose that everybody thought they were working under was we we're going to make this an area uh, in designated wilderness someday. And we're going to get rid of this checkerboard ownership. And a lot of that trading out actually um, was in the drainage surrounding Big Sky. So the fact that Big Sky is there is partly a result of these trade-offs that were made. And, you know, whatever you think about Big Sky, uh, it certainly has had an ecological impact. And whether, you know, at the very least, I would say, if we can't protect the whole Gallatin range that is still roadless uh, as wilderness, we will not have met, we, the, the, the trade-off wouldn't, would be even worth less because we got a lot of development from Big Sky and part of the rationale for it was to compensate for that development by protecting the Gallatin range. And, and 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 the fact that there's any discussion for anything less than wilderness to me is uh, ignores that whole historic precedence of what those land trades were about. Joe, I'm gonna. Yeah, Adam. Go do, ahead. Did you want to follow up on that? Um, I'll, I'll let me hold my thought. I'm curious to hear what you were gonna say or ask. So, as we alluded to earlier, the forest plan recommendation is coming out, and. What would you say to these groups who are 
working to uh, promote wilderness light, perhaps quid pro quo yeah. wilderness. What yeah. would you say to them? And what would you say to the American public and to <laughs> the residents of Bozeman and Livingston about what's before us right now? Uh, that's great. And, and actually, so I can say what I already was going to because you actually anticipate me. That's, that's pretty good. Um, the only thing I wasn't going to include, I will include, I will, I will say first in answer to what you've just said, um, this land belongs to all Americans and all, all Americans were not part of the Gallatin Forest Partnership. Heck, um, not even all Montanans were part of it. Not even all quote interest or user groups were part of it. Only a select subset was part of the Gallatin Forest Partnership talks. Um, those who wanted full wilderness protection were not invited. So that should be known. And that is not widely known. Um, so then to respond to, I think, your more global set of questions, um, there are some things that I think environmentalists are going to have to have the courage to speak up for. And, and I'll, I'll, put it in the following way around thoughts of, uh, or uh, an ethos of self-restraint. So one of my most, I don't know, I guess, <laughs> guiding light philosophers is, is uh, Alain Badiou, who also, so I'm a, I'm a I, I, we didn't say earlier, I'm a psychoanalyst. And I and my doctorate is in psychoanalysis, society and culture. And so I've also studied philosophy and especially philosophy that is that has a psychoanalytic inflection as the philosophy of the contemporary French philosopher Elaine Badiou does. And so Badiou talks about very simply and elegantly um, the difference between what he calls um, satisfaction and happiness. There are other terms for this, and he is not the first to speak of it. And much of it derives, in fact, from the psychoanalytic work of Jacques Lacan, and Badiou was a student of Lacan's back in the day. Um, but um, so satisfaction, as Badiou speaks of it, is um, kind of like going for fun, the kind of fun that you just want to uh, you, you don't want to stop. And when it stops, you just want the next kind of fun. It's kind of like the fun of the fun hog. Um, and, and it's, uh, it's a short sighted sort of, of, of um, seeking of pleasure. And then there's happiness. And by that, he means what happens for a person when they don't chase the thing that they just have to have to have the next rush and whether it's the next charge up a mountain as fast as you can go over how many miles you can uh, to see how many miles you can go in a day, um, you know, all else be damned um, or whether it's, you know, I've got to have my next fix of this or that, or I've got to have my next affair. You take it, whatever, whatever your addictive, 
you know, choices? Or can you put those things in check and, and hold the space for something higher within your own experience? But that requires self-restraint to achieve. And that's what he's calling happiness. So it's kind of like the difference between being a never-ending fun hog and seeking an aesthetic satisfaction. And clearly wilderness is about the latter, quietude and higher values, the values of not just can I rub elbows with my neighbor, but the values of um, how can we live on this planet in a way that can sustain life for, as, for, for ideally all, all people honoring all people and honoring all life forms, non-human as well. And it's like, that's what we're, we're really advocating nothing less than, than those high human aims. And the, the going hard, having fun aims just pale in insignificance. And I, I think I want to call on the endorsers of the Gallatin Forest Partnership, the members of the environmental groups of the Gallatin Forest Partnership, and the employees of the environmental groups of the Gallatin Forest Partnership and all their board members to look at all of this. It's like, what kind of ethics do I want to have? What kind of human do I want to be? What is my legacy to future generations? That's what this is about. And George, what would and, your uh, appeal be? I, yeah, I'm going to, I mean, I totally agree with Joe uh, on the whole ethical and what we're about. And, and, and I uh, sort of elaborate a little bit more, uh, referring back to how significant the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem is. It's a global significance. And it, it is, and that puts a responsibility on all of us uh, this is not just making a decision about what somebody in Bozeman, Montana might want to do, but we have to be thinking about, you know, uh, people across the whole planet and and the life uh, sustainability of the planet and what we're talking about in a, in its own way can contribute to that greater sustainability if we protect the Gallatin Range as well as some of the other larger roadless areas on the Gallatin Forest because they're critical to maintaining the ecological integrity of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And, and, and I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm beating a drum here over and over again, but, but this is something that we may not have another opportunity to do uh, in the future. And if we don't take this opportunity to ensure the protection of this area, uh, to the best that ability that we can do at this time, you know, uh, we, we have certain laws we can work with, but the, the Wilderness Act is a law that is the best thing that we have at this time. I refer to it as the gold standard um, for maintaining biodiversity and ecological function and, um, and, and other things, too, even just scenery. Uh, you know, there's a whole thing uh, in the way Joe is alluding to it. There's a whole thing out there about protecting wilderness just because we like to know about it. And certainly that, that's something for me. I, I read about uh, landscapes I'll never visit, but I still want to see them protected uh, because that's uh, part of what uh, Wallace Stegner called the geography of hope. 
it's it's part of what mm-hmm. gives me hope that we can maybe someday see there's a there's a whole thing that Joe was referring to about restraint. Uh, if, if we can't show restraint for something like protecting the Gallatin Range, how are we ever going to show restraint for protecting the entire planet? Um, so uh, in, in an itsy-bitsy way, uh, baby steps, doing things like protecting wilderness uh, gives us uh, a, you know, a way to show that we can operate with some restraint, that we don't think of everything should be uh, given over to you know, human primacy. And, um, and and so uh, I, I think it's really important that we do this for that reason. And, and George, would you say a little bit, please, for the listener about the, what sets the greater Yellowstone ecosystem apart in, in terms of wildlife, original wildlife intactness and breadth of wildlife and why this particular battle is so crucial to this this larger condition of humankind and and larger condition of the earth well you know i mean you've you've basically set me up really well but uh the greater yellowstone ecosystem is known as one of the larger uh temperate uh zone protected areas in the world and it, you know yellowstone is the center of it but there are large wilderness areas in surrounding the yellowstone and and grand teton national park and and wildlife refuges like red rocks wildlife refuge and the elk refuge down in jackson hole and uh you pull this all together all these protected lands and you have a significant amount of the landscape that um it, where where we put nature first and uh or at least we in theory should be putting nature first and uh and because we've done it for such a long time and and we're lucky in this people have to realize that the designation of yellowstone was so contrary to what america was all about in 1872 that's just post-world uh civil war and the whole uh, emphasis of the federal government was to develop the west as fast as possible uh, get more settlers out here, get more miners out here, get more railroads, uh, get more farmers, et cetera, get, get the land under uh, uh, development. And, and then in 1872, in, the, in, in an era where that was the prime goal of the, of the federal government with the Timber and Stone Act, the Homestead Act, and mining law of 1872, et cetera, we set aside some land and said, well, this is a little piece of land. We're not going to do this then. And so it was really contrary to that. And, and it was just in time, because I can tell you that if we had not set aside Yellowstone in 1872, it probably would have been homesteaded and turned into a bunch of ranches and maybe, uh, you know, some geolo- uh, geological, you know, fun sites where they charge you a bunch of money to come, you know, walk out in some hot springs or whatever, uh, uh, or come and, you know, you pay $5 and you can chip away at a hot spring and take it home as a souvenir. That's what would have been the fate of Yellowstone if it had come along 10 years, 15 years later. So we're lucky that we got that and that started having forest reserves and other protected lands around it. And and I just see this as the next step is protecting these uh, roadless areas that we have on the fringes that are still there, like the Gallatin Range. That's Hmm. great. We don't want to become Colorado in the sense of what Colorado lost. Right. of its wildness. Yeah, there's so many cautionary tales out there. And the wildlife are what really make this place so special and 
Um, well, I have a confession to make and, um, I love greater Yellowstone. I, I love it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's not something we talk about maybe as much as we should. And Louisa Wilcox likes to talk about love and, um, you know, for, for men to talk about love can be difficult, but, um, I love this place and I know that you guys do too. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll add into, you know, I've, I've been to over 400 designated wilderness areas and over 200 national park inns, including every national park in Alaska. And my favorite place on the whole planet is still the Yellowstone ecosystem. And, um, mm. it, it just, I just feel magical when I'm around there. I, I can't tell you, I just, uh, you know, I just start smiling when I get close to Yellowstone Park borders and, <laughs> and uh, start seeing the wildlife that's all around. And, and it just, uh, I could tell you what a loss I would feel if that were not there. And it would be a tremendous loss to my soul. Mm. When, when I, when I leave here to travel every time I get back, whether it's by car or plane, and I, I start to see um, landmarks that tell me where I am. Everything in me changes. I mean, my whole, it's not just my mind. I feel my body just relaxing. It's like, oh my God, I'm home. Look at where I am. <laughs> I can totally relate. <laughs> yeah, my heart is out there. Mm. Uh, my heart is out there too, so. Well, um, yeah. Anything, anything else to add? I mean, I, I mean, what can what can people do, and uh, how can they find the information okay. they need? It's it's confusing. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance has a draft website. Uh, you can you can Google it, and we're adding to it and improving it. We you got to remember, we're all volunteers at this point, and uh, you know, just working on these things as we have time. But we do have a website that has information about what uh, we're proposing. Uh, we're hoping at some point to get legislation introduced in the Congress uh, that would protect uh, not only the Gallatin Range, but some of the other larger roadless areas like the Crazy Mountains, the Pryor Mountains, the uh, Lionhead proposed wilderness south of the Lee Metcalf Wilderness near West Yellowstone and so forth. And... Um, and our goal is to generate public support, which is kind of what has, that's what was done in the past. That's how wilderness was ever protected, was to get people that uh, live in these areas and outside of these areas excited about a place and and garner their support for protecting it. And so that's what we're trying to do is uh, get a grassroots effort going and uh People can uh, go to our website and uh, and learn a little bit about it. And also, if you're living in Montana, uh, there will be some talks uh, now and again where I and others associated with the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance uh, will be giving talks, and we encourage you to try to come to them and uh, learn more. And, Joe, do you have anything to add? I would add just um, to members um, who to dues paying members of uh, you folks, especially who may be listening, if we've touched you at all, let your boards and your staff know enough is enough. No more giving away precious little wild land that we have left. Stop 
now. No more compromising it away. Enough is enough. And you're speaking to Montana Wilderness Association, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, and the Wilderness Society. Is that correct, among others? Yes, and to its members, those especially, that's right, those three, to its members to tell your boards and your staff, no more. And if people want to take direct action, can they write the Forest Service? Um, well, when George? the forest plan, yes, when the forest plan is released, we'll see what the Forest Service recommends. Um, I'd be surprised if they recommend um, wilderness for the remaining roadless areas on the Gallatin. They might recommend some, which would be great. Uh, but uh, there will be a comment period. And uh, when that comes out, people should pay attention. Uh, we'll probably have some alerts on our website of, you know, sort of more details about what you can say and what you shouldn't say. But, you know, the basic thing is, you know, you can when they come out, they'll ask for public comments. You can just write it very simply. I would like to see full wilderness protection for uh, the larger roadless areas on the Custer Gallatin Forest, including the Gallatin Range and any place else you want to name that you know of, like the Crazies or uh, et cetera. So um, that would be the next step. And then after that, um, we can see where it goes from there. That That's maybe when we start our, our, our legislative campaign to try to change the minds of uh, the legislators in Montana and elsewhere that this is worthy of protection. Okay. Joe, anything anything to add as we wrap up? No, just my gratitude for um, your uh, giving us this platform, Adam, and helping us articulate and put our voices out there. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And, I, I agree. I, I agree, too, Adam. Thank you very much. The other thing I'd say is thanks to anybody in, in Montana and outside of Montana that uh, – uh, agrees with our position that we should be protecting these lands. And uh, please take the time to uh, follow along and be active because that's really the only way you change anything is by putting your voice out there and letting particularly uh, politicians know what, uh, what you want. Without doing that, you're not going to see change. And we need to have every voice we possibly can. And thank you, too, for speaking up. This has been a, a real pivotal moment for me as well and an eye-opener. And uh, I hope people are um, paying attention to what's happening on the Gallatin, Custer Gallatin National Forest, and uh, that we can all come together and coalesce around wilderness. Uh, wilderness is uh, ever more important today. It's uh, it's only getting more important, and um, it's, it's certainly worth fighting for and, and speaking out for. So... Thank you, uh, George and Joe, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Since the recording of this episode, I'd like to announce the launch of a new promotional video for the Galton Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance and their initiative. It's called Yellowstone Uncompromised. And you can find that on YouTube. If you search on Yellowstone Uncompromised, uh, you'll find it there. And also there'll be a link in the... Uh, episode section on wildernesspodcast.com. And for full disclosure, this was produced in partnership with myself and Wilderness Podcast. And I think the uh, film does a good job of explaining uh, what's going on there in the Galatons and what's at stake. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wilderness Podcast. You can find us online at wildernesspodcast.com. 
don't forget to subscribe through your podcasting app. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit wildernesspodcast.com backslash support. Thanks for listening.